Good morning, everyone. Hope you had a blessed Thanksgiving and that you're still enjoying some leftovers. I think the best part of Thanksgiving are the leftover turkey sandwiches and the, and the cranberry relish. I mean, that's my favorite. Apple pie, too. Don't forget the apple pie. Now, I know I've told this story before, but it is my favorite Thanksgiving story. So I have to tell it again. It was told many years ago by radio commentator Paul Harvey. So it has to be true, right? It seems the Butterball Turkey Company set up a telephone hotline to answer consumer questions about how to prepare your holiday turkey. And one woman called to ask about a turkey that she had found at the very bottom of her freezer. She figured it had been in her freezer for about 23 years. And so she wanted to know if it would still be safe to eat after all that time. 23 years. Well, the Butterball representative, you know, had never run up against that kind of problem before, so he put her on hold, says, let me go talk to my supervisor. He comes back online a few minutes later and said, you know, our experts think that the turkey would probably still be safe to eat as long as the freezer had been kept below zero continuously for the entire 23 years. But I have to warn you that even if the turkey is safe to eat, the flavor has probably deteriorated to such a degree that it would, you know, would taste like old cardboard. So we can't recommend eating it. And the caller replied, well, that's what I thought, so I'll give it to the church. Yeah, thanks a lot. You know, that's just what her church really needed, a 23-year-old cardboard-tasting turkey to serve at its Thanksgiving meal, you know, like for the homeless. Unfortunately, that attitude is not all that uncommon. I know many churches that have stopped doing clothes drives for the needy because what they got from their church members was just ripped up, stained, worn out clothes, missing buttons, stuck zippers. It was either throw the stuff in the trash or give it to the church and then ask for an inflated donation receipt for tax purposes. Giving to God what is useless to you. Giving to God what you don't want or you don't need anymore. Giving to God your leftovers. That's a sign that people seriously misunderstand what it means to truly worship and sincerely love the Lord. True worshipers are inspired to give God their very best, their very best, to the point where they maybe actually even make sacrifices for their faith. They give God their very best even when they can't afford it. And when it pushes them out of their comfort zone, they give God their very best because they've experienced the extravagant love of Christ and they want others to know that love so much that they are willing to take a hit personally, financially, materially, so that someone else might ex experience that same amazing grace. Giving God your leftovers. Friends, that's the theme of this last book in the series that we're doing on the Minor Prophets, the prophet Malachi. The very last book of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. Our journey through the Minor Prophets has led us through about 500 years of ancient history, from roughly 1,000 B.C. when a brutal civil war split, split Israel into two nations. Each nation then kind of followed the cycle of turning their backs on God and then running after the little mini-gods of their neighbors, sometimes turning back to gods only briefly. So through the prophets, God had warned them that they'd better stop messing around or he's going to withdraw his hand of blessing and protection was going to let them have their way and then pay the consequences. So the Jewish people were eventually conquered by invading armies. Jerusalem was destroyed, and they were carried off as prisoners into a foreign land. God allowed consequences. 
which is what God does for us if we choose to stiff arm his purposes or ignore his clear teachings or ignore his will. He lets us go and he allows us to experience real consequences for our actions. God offered the rebellious people of old and he offers us the hand of forgiveness, but it comes with a price and that price is sincere repentance. Some did turn back to God and a faithful remnant eventually returned to Jerusalem, eventually rebuilt the temple around the year 520 B.C. Malachi picks up the story about 100 years later, after that. And guess what? The cycle of falling away, of putting God on the back burner, of only offering lip service instead of sincere worship, it's happening all over again. This is like a, like a recurring nightmare. People had grown complacent, thought it was okay to give God what was second best. Their hearts were not in it anymore. And Malachi wants them to snap out of it. Let me read from chapter 1. A prophecy. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? And I'm skipping down to verse 6. A man or a son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would just shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And I will accept no offerings from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them? From your hands, says the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Amen. This is the word of God. Malachi, his name means my messenger. And God sent him with a very straightforward message. You're you are insulting God when you give him your second best. Malachi uh, is to a kind of a, a attack this complacency that had, had settled over the people of God. And the way his book is written is very different from any of the other minor prophets we've looked at so far. It's a series of seven dialogues or arguments between God and the people. God says something, and then the people argue back. And God tells them how he wants them to live, how he expects his people to live, and the people respond with kind of cynical questions and, 
and pretty much a, a really sour attitude. God starts off with the simplest and maybe the most profound argument in verse 2. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. And their response is, is just so snarky. Really? How? So God, through Malachi, gives them a little history lesson through Jacob and Esau, how the people of Israel got their start as Jacob's descendants, that, that God chose them, protected them, guided them, blessed them over generations and generations, even when they didn't deserve it, showed no appreciation for it. And all God wants in return is for them to love him back. Not perfectly, but intentionally and seriously and passionately. Like how a good earthly father is honored by his children. God expects and God deserves a return on his investment. He wants their hearts to be warm towards him. But what they've got is this entitled sort of what's in it for me attitude. Or worse, what have you done for me lately? This sour attitude played out in their lives in primarily two ways. And Malachi addresses both in his book. In their financial giving and worship and in their marriages. Their financial giving and worship and their marriages. Two pretty important topics. Old Testament law required that people offer to God sacrifices from their flocks and from their herds. That was how a person showed their devotion to God. Uh, and the animals were supposed to be of their fru first fruits. That's a phrase that means give your very best. They were supposed to bring their very best animals to God as an act of worship. And instead what was happening is they'd find some raggedy old sheep on its last leg, some diseased animal that they couldn't even sell or slaughter, so they'd give it to the temple like a 23-year-old frozen turkey. In verse 8, God says, You wouldn't give that mangy animal to your governor, would you? But you think it's okay to give it to me? The gift shows what you really think of me, God says. God says, if you're given stuff that's past the expiration date, what does that really say about your concept or, or relationship with me? Don't give me your second best. I don't want it. I sure don't need it. And then amazingly, God said, it would be better for us to lock the temple door. Stop doing worship altogether than for you to keep digging a deeper hole with this insincere and shoddy attitude that you have towards me. That's what God says. Might as well just stop the whole thing instead of continue to pretending that they really love the Lord. Here's Malachi's key point. The quality of your worship is in direct proportion to your heart response to God. The quality of your worship is in direct proportion to your heart response to God. What did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. That's Mark 12:30. If you really love Jesus, it will show up in the way that you worship and in your financial giving. Malachi focuses on animals because they were primarily an agricultural and bartering economy. They, they traded in livestock and in crops. That's how people calculated their wealth and how they moved their finances around. And damaged animals, uh, the gifts that they brought to God, exposed their true heart condition before God. It turns out they were worshiping God's God for all kinds of superficial reasons, but their hearts were not in it. Right after the American Civil War in the 1870s, one of the most famous preachers in America was Henry Beecher Ward. Uh, several thousand people would come and hear him preach every Sunday at the Plymouth Congregational Church in Brooklyn, New York. People came from all over the country to worship at that church. One Sunday, he was absent. 
and a visiting preacher who was substituting for him. And when the visiting minister came to the pulpit, the people realized, you know, Reverend Beecher wasn't preaching. Uh, some of the people started for the doors. And the guest minister, he stopped them right in their tracks and said, May I have your attention, please? All of you who came this morning to worship Henry Ward Beecher, you may now withdraw from the church. All who came to worship God may stay. You know, people may come to a worship service for many different kinds of reasons. To hear a certain preacher, to watch their children perform, to visit their friends, to fulfill a family obligation, to be with someone they're trying to impress. But there's really only one reason that's acceptable. It's to give your best self to God. To give the very best of who you are to Him. And Malachi syncs up with Jesus here when Jesus said, Where your treasure is, is where your heart will be. Matthew 6, 21. Malachi said, Don't cheat God. Don't think that God doesn't see, that God doesn't know. You may fool others, but you are not fooling Him. You see, Malachi is actually a very dangerous book to read because he opens the door on some really uncomfortable questions, heart questions, questions that we don't really like to hear. Like later in chapter 3, verse 10, God says through Malachi, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. A tithe is 10% of the gross. That's what the word means. If someone gives 8%, that's not a tithe. That's a gift or a donation. But a tithe is 10%. Now, please don't get mad at me for saying this, but if Malachi were here this morning, he'd ask this uncomfortable question, how are you doing with that? How are you doing with that? What is your level of giving? Do you even know what your level of giving is? What do you think it should be? I mean, we're not under Old Testament law. I know that, so please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that as Christians we're obligated by Old Testament law in how much we give. But because we're on this side of the cross now, does that mean because we know God's grace, does that mean God expects, expects less? Because we're saved by grace, we should give less? You have to show me that somewhere in the Bible. Bible. Honestly, I'm not interested in debating percentages for giving. The real question from Malachi is this. Are you giving from your leftovers or from your first fruits? If Malachi were here today, he'd ask another uncomfortable question. Why are you late for worship all the time? What does that say to God about your heart attitude? Again, don't get mad at me for asking the question, but if you can be on time for a commuter train or a school bell, I think Malachi would ask the question, why can't you be on time for worship? If you're a Christian, what does being late for worship say about your attitude towards God? These are heart issues because the heart is the command center of a person's life. That's where we make our decisions and plans and how we direct our lives. That's where this attitude towards worship kind of then bleeds over into other areas of life. Specifically, Malachi mentions marriage in chapter 2. The argument he's making is that if people can be casual in this commitment to God, then it's not much of a leap for them to become casual in their commitment to their spouse or to their marriage. If you'll cheat on God, hey, it's no big thing to cheat on your spouse because it's a hard thing, a character thing, a complacency thing, a consistency thing. 
that complacent what's in it for me attitude had now infected their sense of marriage and it corrupted their sense of covenant with their spouse. They no longer took their vows to God seriously. And if the vows weren't convenient anymore, they didn't take the vows to their wives or husbands seriously either. Just move on. They were very casual in breaking their vows to God and their vows to each other. And God said, I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. Be true to me. Be true to your spouse. You know, when it comes to gauging your spiritual life, there are only a couple of things that we can actually count or measure. We can only count our dollars and our days. Our dollars and our days. How many wish you had more dollars and more days? The average person in America lives about 27,000 days. That's about 74 years in case you're trying to calculate. Over the course of a lifetime, the average person in America earns about $2 million. 74 years, $2 million. What happens is that life goes by so fast we don't have time to pull back and examine or think about how are we investing our days and our dollars and our resources. We don't take time to examine wisely and to strategically what are we doing with our dollars and our days. We become so busy in life that we don't have time to look at life or to work on life. Let me say that again. We become so busy in life that we don't have time to look at life or to work on our life. And Malachi kind of forces us to do that. From God's perspective, to look at our dollars and our days, because time goes fast and money goes faster. When we're young, you know, we're busy, you got your education, friends, first job, you don't think a lot about your dollars and your days. And then we go through so many transitions, you know, marriage, mortgage, kids, college, health care. You know, I'm at the stage now where I have to start thinking about retirement in a few years, and that's a big transition. Lots of us baby boomers are having to think about that one. And as we look back and look ahead, I realize that I may not have spent my dollars and my days in all the best ways. So Malachi challenges me to look at my life so that I can examine my life and then make decisions about my life. Because basically there are only three ways you can see your dollars and your days. The first is, what's mine is mine. What's mine is mine. I earned it. It's mine. I got it. It's mine. That's the easy way. That's kind of the default of the human heart, the selfish nature of the human heart. What's mine is mine. You don't have to teach this to kids. Every parent knows this. Put a couple of three-year-olds in a room with only a couple of toys. See what happens. As soon as one kid shows any sign that he likes a toy, the other kid's going to want to grab it. They learn to claim stuff that's not theirs. They learn that, I think, from the government. You know, Just take what is, isn't theirs. Lots of marriages break up over money because they're, they're not in it together. They fight over what's theirs alone. Or, or maybe you've seen the bumper sticker, we're spending our children's inheritance. Well, that's a what's mine is mine attitude. Proverbs 13.32 says, A wise person leaves an inheritance to their children's children. A wise person wants to leave an inheritance for others that blesses two or three generations because grace then is flowing into the future. Well, the second attitude is what's yours is mine. That's the attitude that's wrecking our nation, quite frankly. People who feel they're entitled, just you know, the long list, health care, education, a place to live, a steady income. I'm owed these things, and they should all be free. But, you know, simple economics 101, nothing is ever free. The money has to come from somewhere, so what's yours is mine. There's a sense of entitlement. I was reading about retail stores during this shopping season, and the big problem that the stores have with theft. The biggest problem, it's not shoplifters. It's employee theft. What the company has should be mine. 
It's an attitude that's kind of rooted in covetousness or jealousy. I deserve more. That's the way the world thinks apart from God. But the third attitude is what Malachi and really the rest of the Bible teaches. What's mine is his. What's mine is his. That's the perspective of stewardship. My gifts, my talents, my energy, uh, ingenuity, knowledge, my ability to think and reason, my next breath, everything is a gift from God. What's mine is his. Everything I have, it's just on loan from God. He gave it to me to care for, to steward, to manage for his glory. And so stewardship is about all my life, not just about money. It's the singular issue that covers all of life. Because what is, on, what is mine is on loan to me from the Lord, and I need to approach it, how I can use it from his perspective, not my own. This is taught throughout the Bible, not just in Malachi. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. If you put God first in your life and do your best to give him the first of everything in your life, he's going to bless you back spiritually, materially, and emotionally. That's God's promise. Give him the first part. The first part of, of every day. You know, we call that having your devotions or a quiet time or your prayer time. Scripture says to give God the first day of the week. We call that a Sabbath. The first part of your money. We call that financial stewardship. But also to give to God the first of our energy, our thoughts, our dreams, our intellect, our time, our imagination. We give to God our life. Whatever you want God to bless, give Him the first of it. Whatever you want God to bless, give Him the first of it. Now here's the complexity of the gospel. God doesn't want your second best, but He will take your worst. He will take your worst sin, your worst failure, your worst self. God will take your worst because that's what the cross of Christ is all about. We can give God our worst and through Christ he will give us his grace. He will give us his best. That's how great his love is for us. But once you have given God your worst and by grace he gives you his best, please don't give him your leftovers. Please don't give God your seconds. Give him your very best self. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this word from Malachi because it's a challenge to me. It's a challenge to every one of us to take a moment to examine ourselves to find out where are we in relation to you and how seriously we take our commitment to you, not just financially but in all areas of life. Do we really recognize that we are stewards of so much that you have given to us? And are we consciously stewarding those resources for your glory and for your kingdom? Help us to live that way this Christmas season, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.